can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis. We resume our reading through the book of Genesis, coming to Genesis 46. Starting in verse 1. This is God's word. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Anak, Halu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Yemuel, Yamin, Ochad, Yachim, Zachar, and Tahog, son of the Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershom, Kohath, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Huva, Hiov, Shimon. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, Yachil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram. Together with his daughter Dinah, all together his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Yiri, Arodi. The sons of Ash. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asena, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Echi, Rosh, Mupim, Upim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hashim, the sons of Naphtali, Yaxael, Guni, Yezer, and Shilam. These are the sons of Bilhah, who Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. We can turn to the Gospel of Matthew. It said that the larger structure of Matthew is divided up into sections of narrative 
and then longer discourses. We've been in the second section of narrative, and this particular section of narrative is rehearsing many of the Lord's miracles. That there were three sequences of three miracles, and so this is the last of the miracles of this section of narrative. And then chapter 10 commences with the commissioning of the disciples and a longer discourse as the Lord explains to them what he is sending them to do. But for now, we have this final miracle in this section, the healing of a man who cannot speak by the driving out of a demon. This is God's word. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. I invite you to join me in prayer. God, prepare our hearts to receive your word as it has been read, O Lord. Press it upon our hearts and use the preached word to bring a light, illumination, shed abroad by the Holy Spirit, who brings light to our hearts and who makes your word into a bread, a nourishment, a true food this from the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ who gives us, who gives us life and uh, who even now is instructing us in the way of salvation, protecting us as our great shepherd, ruling and defending us as our king. We delight to be called your own, O Lord, and we pray that even now you would grant to us that portion which belongs to us by grace, that we might receive it by faith, growth the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Uh, as kids, we would sing at one another, almost taunt one another. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but the words can never hurt me. I was wondering, is that just my generation? Were we the only ones who sang that? Did everybody sing that? That's been around for a while, hasn't it? Do kids still sing it? Well, my kids do now because I've been singing it all week. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I can appreciate what the little song is trying to teach. Um, it's trying to prepare children for the fact that people are going to say mean things to them. Uh, they're going to say mean things uh, about them. And this is going to happen pretty regularly. Um, and usually it's best just to ignore those people. Those people are usually uh, foolish, and their words aren't worth taking to heart. That, to me, seems to be the intent of the little song, and there's wisdom to that. But the song overstates things terribly, doesn't it? We know that words hurt. When people degrade you, it hurts. When people are nice to your face but speak poorly of you behind your back, it hurts. When people lie to you, when they 
manipulate you, when they flatter you, it doesn't feel good. It hurts. The truth is that we can do quite a bit of hurting with our words. That we use our mouths, these gifts that God has given us in all sorts of ways that the Lord did not intend. We've all hurt others with our words. You may have done it this very week. You likely did do it this very week. We've all been hurt by the words of others, likely this very week. So more accurate than the childhood song is Proverbs 18.21. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Well, no wonder the devils want our tongues. No wonder the devils are after our mouths. That's what we see here. We see the devils interested in a man's mouth. Depriving him of the gift of speech. And when we consider why God gave man the gift of speech, we realize that from one angle, the whole of man is mute. And this by a fiendish power. God gave man the gift of speech essentially for prayer and praise. God speaks, and we are to respond to him in prayer and in praise, in an articulation of trust, love, obedience, and worship. This was the nature of our relationship, and for this reason, he gave us mouths. He gave us the power of speech, a power which differentiates us from the animals. For whatever they're doing in terms of their communication, it can't properly be called speech. I suspect the deers are not gathered for worship in the forest to listen to an exposition of the words of God. We are. Speech makes us closer to the Lord in one of many ways. But if that's the proper purpose of speech, prayer and praise, then from that angle we can say that indeed the whole of man is mute, indeed worse than mute. And this is true for everybody apart from God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if the devils are after our mouths and indeed have dominated them, perverting that good gift of speech, we, hear the Lord, we see here the Lord recovering a mouth. He recovers mouths. And he does throw, so through his powerful speech. If death and life are in the power of the tongue, we're forced to admit that our tongues kill, his makes a lie. Praise be his name. That there is one tongue that gives life. There is one tongue that recovers other tongues, which he then instructs to be instruments of life. The Lord alone liberates from the power of hell. It's an interesting angle that this text gives us. It's one that's plain in Scripture. The dominion of the devil. The influence of devils who would have disorder and cruelty and Deceit spread by our mouths. We lend them our mouths. He is the one who expels this unclean spirit, and he is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. So it's a recovery from the dominion of darkness. It's the dispelling of an unclean spirit, and it's the gift of a new spirit altogether who teaches us how to speak. To speak life. 
It's not a coincidence that this is the final miracle before he commissions his disciples to go and preach the gospel. To bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. This miracle, the Lord recovers speech and then he's going to send them out to go and speak. To speak of him. To speak of the life that he brings. To recover tongues. That they may begin to stammer forth their true purpose. Let's go and consider this morning the gift of speech. First, consider that the devils want our tongues. Second, that Christ alone can recover our tongues. And that third, we're invited to ask, what do you say? So first, the devils want our tongues. Verse 32 opens, and as they were going away, Behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Not only is the human race afflicted by physical misery in its fallen condition, which we considered several weeks ago as we wrestled with blindness, man in his fallen condition is also subject to spiritual torment by dark creatures. As I was wrestling this, I wasn't sure which was more passe to say, that man was a sinner or that there were these dark creatures. I don't know which is more passe, but both are true. Scripture is utterly plain about that. Not all physical ailments are demonic. Scripture is plain about that. But demons can physically afflict, and that's what we see here. This is not a quote-unquote natural ailment. This is a supernatural ailment. We see that throughout Matthew's Gospel. These dark spirits can cause seizures. They can cause blindness. They drive into the tombs. They cast a herd of swine into the sea and so on. They're immaterial, invisible beings, but they can inflict suffering upon physical beings. This is the plain teaching of Scripture. It's strange to us, but we do well to admit that we don't really understand all that much. Ask any scientist. You talk to Chris Tuchter. He has a Ph.D. in these things not demons, science. <laughs> Ask him how much scientists really know. He will tell you, not that much. And that's about the physical universe. We're forced to admit that the world is strange. We inhabit a strange cosmos. We're reminded that these dark creatures are real and that they are active, and they have been from the beginning. Paul tells us as much, writing in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. A wrestling is against something much darker. Now, as Presbyterians, we doubtlessly give too little thought to this layer of spiritual opposition in the Christian life. Admittedly, some people give this far too much attention, but it's not you. <laughs> You're Presbyterians. You barely admit the reality of these things. James writes, resist the devils, and the Presbyterians say, oh, I've never met him. <laughs> No, you have. James says that you have. And the devil is delighted for our practical unbelief because it means that we're already disadvantaged in our resistance of him. If we practically deny him, how will we watch for him? James says, James says you have met the devil. Our Lord says you have and you will. This is what he invites us to pray when we ask, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
Mark, if your trials aren't beset by all sorts of spiritual temptation that feel as if they have an otherworldly sting to them, an otherworldly difficulty to them, he's crouching at the door of our hearts. He's prowling like a roaring lion according to Scripture. Here we meet a mute man. And we're invited to consider why on earth the devils are so interested in our mouths. They're active. And they want our tongues. James has the same interest. If you read James' letter, he talks about our inability to bridle our tongue and our religion being shown to be worthless, if that's the case. He talks about tongues that are lit ablaze by the fires of hell. This man is silent. He was made to pray and to praise the true and living God. And the devils would keep everyone from that. If they blind the eyes of the world to the gospel of Christ, they also want to keep tongues from confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, from expressing dependence upon the heavenly Father, from doing what we were supposed to do, namely worship the true and living God in the Lord Jesus Christ. This he accomplishes by silence, and we're forced to acknowledge that the devils often prompt us to sinful silence before God and before one another. Consider that in cruelty, they urge us to give each other the silent treatment. There's more than one way to express cruelty. Husbands and wives, they are urging you not to speak your expectations of one another. And then they're urging you to silently fume when your spouse fails to live up to what you never asked them to do. They're urging us into silence when we have the opportunity to share the hope of the gospel. They're urging us to say nothing when we sin, but to rant and rave when others sin. <laughs> they urge us in silence when we know that we ought to pray. They urge us in silence when we know that we ought to worship and to give thanks. They're very interested in stealing our tongues, and they often do. But more often it seems to me that they set our tongues on fire and delight as we burn things down with all sorts of words. Children, have you ever seen a bonfire? I know some of the children have. How does that big fire start? They can get pretty big. I've seen some that are like the size of a small van. Even those fires, how do they start? With a little match. A fire the size of a Volkswagen starts with a flame the size of a penny. Many of the forest fires that we see on the news start the same way. Somebody playing with matches in the wrong circumstances, and then acres and acres and millions and millions of dollars destroyed. James says our tongues are frequently like those destructive flames. James 3.8. The tongue is a fire, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. He calls this sort of speaking, speaking in cruelty, speaking in selfishness, speaking in deception, 
demonic. Go read James chapter 3. He says it. Does he mean by that that we're not responsible? No. He means that very frequently our sin, our flesh, cooperates with an even darker power to whom we yield our members. Do you know the destructive power of speech? I trust that you do. But I also suspect that you're less inclined to see demonic power active in scenes that are all too familiar to us. They're there as they're urging us on to speak our minds in anger and frustration. I just got to get this off my chest. And they prompt us to set scenes ablaze by our tongues. And the Spirit would have us exercise self-control. They're urging us to flirt and to confide in people we have no business confiding when you really ought to be speaking to your lawful spouse as lives are set on fire by words. They're urging you to speak ill of one another when you really ought to either mind your own business or take it up with the person with whom you have issue. And they laugh as households burn to the ground. They urge you to use Scripture in such a way where you're constantly seeing it the sins of others and never have your own heart indicted by it. Isn't that what Satan did? Using God's own word to try to bring down the Son? Make no mistake, they're active, beloved, and they're very good at what they do. They're very good at what they do. You don't believe me? We all do these things, and I would venture to guess you do not see dark spirits at work in these ways. That's how good they are at it. <laughs> you are constantly bested by beings that you barely consider. Feeling this, our helplessness. This man was brought helpless. There's not a physician on earth that could help it. There's no speech therapist who could loosen this tongue. There's only one who could help. Grim a worm tongue is Theoden King's counselor. This is Lord of the Rings. The king is led to believe that the ideas that are whispered are properly his own. The best of men bested by the lowest of creatures. So we can give thanks as the great king appears here who alone can free from this power and who does rescue from a tyranny and a, a dominion the likes of which we just barely understand. We can just barely glimpse thanks to the light of God's word. So feel something of our helplessness in this. That we're boxing wrestling with creatures that we don't understand who are far better at what they do than we think they are. And let that helplessness drive you to the one who so freely stands forth here as the one who dispels them with a word. 
if our instruction is to watch and to pray, let us at least be aware of something of what we're watching for. And partly it's the evil one who would see our world set on fire by the use of our tongues or the use of our silence. But second, we can consider that the Lord rescues our tongues. Verse 33, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. I love this. It's just a matter of course. He doesn't even linger on the exorcism here. There's no struggle. There's no battle. The Lord simply dismisses this foul spirit. In Matthew 9, he does so with a word. It's just a single word. Go. Go. In Matthew 4, Jesus commands the ruler of the demons with a sentence. Depart from me, Satan. And if the ruler of the demons is compelled to obey, of course the subjects must go. Their prince has been bound. The strong man is bound. His house is now being plundered. That's what Jesus is going to teach us in Matthew 12. Gandalf refuses to engage with Grimma. He's a worm. He's a witless worm. And Gandalf the White is far superior to Grimma's master, Soramon of many colors. When David killed the monster Goliath, the Philistine champion, the rest of the army fled. The devil departs with a word because the Lord of glory stands before him. The one to whom all are subject. And what's astonishing is they know it better than we. They know that they have to obey his word. They can't but obey his word. And we obey it so slowly. But behold the power of the one who alone can rescue from the dominion of darkness. It's a power the likes of which Achilles can't even understand. The strength of Achilles is in terms of a physical strength. The Lord here demonstrates that all things bow to his word and his person magnificent for he's conquered not by the sword but by laying down his life in righteousness it's his righteousness which is his strength it's his perfect obedience it's his perfect and pure love for the father exercised in giving his life as a ransom for many by this he has plundered hell by virtue of this he has the keys of death and Hades by virtue of the forgiveness and the life which he freely extends to harassed and helpless sinners, there's true freedom, beloved. The one whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And make no mistake, if you do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you belong to the devil. His dominion, his tyranny is so thick that you don't even realize it. This is what Paul writes terrifyingly in Ephesians 2.2. Apart from Christ, all are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The disobedience to the word of Christ is animated by an unclean spirit altogether. But before you now stands the Lord of glory as presented in his word, and I speak on his behalf. He alone can set the prisoners free. He is calling to you to come. 
receive of His grace, His mercy, and the freedom of forgiveness and love. And look what happens to the man. He begins to speak. He begins to exercise that wonderful gift that the Lord has given. The Lord restores the gift that the devil had corrupted. Now again, he's about to go and commission the disciples to go speak on his behalf, both to demons and to men, proclaiming the power of the kingdom of heaven. And we see in this the blessed truth that Jesus is preparing worshipers and witnesses. And what he does here isn't just to gawk at or to wonder at. What he does is he comes and presents himself as the, the Lord and the giver of forgiveness and life. He presents himself to issue a call to come to him and to use the things that his Father has given you in the service of this King in the proclamation of his worth and his glory. Jesus is preparing worshipers and witnesses, and that's what Peter tells us. Why did he rescue us from the domain of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of light? To proclaim his excellency. Or as Peter says in Acts 4, verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. He opens our ears to hear the word of truth. He opens our eyes to see through faith his excellencies in yielding his life as a ransom for many, and he loosens our tongues to do what we were made to do. To pray and to praise the only one who is worthy of such a high gift. And if this is the purpose for which he has given us our mouths, and if this is the purpose into which he has brought our ransom mouths, we know that we can seek his grace to fulfill that very purpose. Because truth be told, as Christians, though we're brought from under the dominion of the devil, we still feel his influence, don't we? We're still being, learned, we're still being taught, shown how to speak in a new way. Paul writes in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Children, I bet you don't remember learning how to speak. Do you remember learning how to speak? I don't remember. I just woke up. I knew. I just knew. I was like, hey, mom. <laughs> It's like that for everybody. Maybe you remember your first words, but you don't remember learning how to speak. You just woke up speaking, as it were. But you can improve in speech. You can learn more words. You can use those words in a way that's lovely and good and effective and, and beautiful. You can change your voice. Some people are given a remarkable voice. They can sing words. Of beauty. Some are given a remarkable tongue. They can pen words of beauty. But we didn't consciously learn how to speak. By God's grace, we just started speaking the truth of his word. But we are learning how to speak better, as it were. <laughs> to use words in a way that are more in accord with God's word. The word of Christ. Speaking the truth in love where formerly we were content to tear one another down, now we're eager to build one another up. Formerly we were content with 
singing our own praise. I'm, I'm really lovely. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. <laughs> now we use those tongues to say, look at him. He's remarkable. He has done wonderful things. He has done wonderful things for me. He made you. He's calling you. That gift that we used unto our own glory, which was really our shame, he now employs to his glory, which is our glory, beloved. By grace he gives the gift of speech. By grace we learn how to speak the word of Christ, which alone brings life by the power of the Spirit. So we close by asking, what say you? Instruct that more than half of this little episode is focused on the responses, on speech in response to the miracle of recovered speech. That's how it closes. The mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. The declaration of who Jesus Christ is as the Lord of glory continues to go forth. A response is demanded. There's no dismissing this figure. He must be grappled with. Who he is is plainly on display in the Gospels and throughout Scripture. Who he is continues to be set forth and marveled at the world over. And so we're forced to consider that perhaps the most important thing that you'll ever do with your mouth is answer the question, who is this? That's what Jesus asked Peter in Matthew 16. Who do people say that I am? You've got to say who I am. Because I've told you who I am. The Father has told you who I am. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Who do you say that I am? There's very few questions that hold as much weight as that one. There's no answer that you'll ever be asked to give with your mouth that rises to that level of importance. So who do you say that he is? Peter says you are the Christ, the Son of God. We've seen. Nobody's ever done these things. Nobody ever spoke in this way. You are exactly who you say you are. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The only Savior for sinners. The true revelation of the Father. That's who you are. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Here we see two very different responses on behalf of the crowd and on behalf of the Pharisees. One of them is incredibly dangerous. The Pharisees tragically see the power of Christ on display. It's indisputable how he was mute and now he's speaking. That just before this, literally on the heels of this, you can see this is as they were going away, who is that? There was two just blind men who now see they were on their way out 
and this mute man was on his way in. Jesus had already restored sight. Now he restores speech. Everybody saw it. And they say, yeah, he's doing it by devils. Can't deny that he's doing something. I mean, he was blind. They're seeing. That's tough. He couldn't speak. Now he's speaking. That's tough. Yeah. He's doing it by devils. For sure. Let's see in that the unsettling power of prejudice. Let's glimpse in the obtuseness of that response, the unsettling power of hatred. Their hatred for this man drives them to an absurd conclusion. This man who speaks with purity, who speaks with wisdom, which continues to reverberate down to this very age with such an intensity of light that inconsistently, even those who don't believe are forced to say, this is really something. This teaching really is something. That's how he taught. That's how he conducted himself. And not only that, he goes about healing, restoring life, restoring sight, restoring speech, drawing near to the lowly, feeding, saving. And they say, yeah, he's doing this on behalf of the devil. Lest we think we're better than they, mark how difficult it is for you to think and speak well of someone you don't like. Isn't that the same thing? That same power of hatred that so deranges. I think we're led to see the devil's work in this as well. <laughs> it takes on a new depth and dimension. We ought to be unsettled in our hearts that such is the power that is opposing us in this world. That they can be convinced absolutely that they are in the right and they are so wrong the less dangerous but still insufficient response comes from the crowd they say there has never been anyone like this man in Israel it's an interesting thing to say because there's been some pretty remarkable people in Israel <laughs> Moses was essentially accounted as a god to Pharaoh the Egyptians essentially regarded him as a god. You can see why. <laughs> I mean, he brought down the mightiest nation on earth with a staff. <laughs> and this is the servant of the Most High God. Moses did wonders. Elijah and Elisha did wonders. But the Lord Jesus Christ did wonders with an ease and a number that had never been seen before. Even as you read the accounts of what Moses did, what Elijah and Elisha did, they're working pretty hard. Jesus does it pretty easily. <laughs> and not only does he do it with ease as one who possesses a power and authority that they didn't have, just consider the sheer number of miracles that he did. We have but a small account of what he did in his life. Even in Matthew's gospel, you get these throwaway phrases like, and he healed them all. 
How many were there? (laughs) It seems like that was a long and joyful night. John tells us that even if all of the books in the world were somehow gathered together, it wouldn't be enough to write down everything that he did. And yet even in the face of that, the people still come up short. They say, nobody has ever done these things. That's not enough. (laughs) That's not far enough. It's not enough just to say that he is exceptional. It's not enough just to say that he is unique. It's not enough just to say that he is remarkable in one way or another. For he claims to be the son of God. He claims to be the savior of the world. He claims to be the purpose for which everything was made. For from him, to him, and through him are all things. Paul says, heaven and earth are summed up in Jesus Christ. That's who he claims to be. Not enough just to say he's remarkable. He is. But he says that he's the savior of sinners, the Messiah of the living God, the only son of the Father. I'll close just with two quick observations. First, unbelief is quite thick, is it not? How much they witnessed. Just consider, like just this one episode, blind in, seeing out, mute in, speaking out. This guy's pretty incredible. Well, we'll figure it out later. Consider all the light that we have in Scripture. Old, New Testament, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost, and yet consider how slow we are to believe. It's good for you to pray. I'm like, well, I got other things to do good for you to worship, but it's really cold. It's good for you to build one another up in your words. Yeah, but they're pretty difficult. So slow to believe. Believe it or not, we have greater evidence than even they have. Second, Mark, that his power and grace are without limit. He healed. He worked miracles. He extended grace and mercy Countless, numberless. They brought him the sick, he healed the sick. They brought him the blind, he healed the blind. They brought him the mute, he healed the mute. They brought him to the dead, he raised the dead. His power wasn't wanting. It wasn't as if he was running out. His power and grace are infinite, beloved. The most dreadful cases of possession, indeed death itself, He heals with a word. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of life has appeared to bring forgiveness, freedom, hope. So, the Lord has given you a mouth. Doubtless you have misused it. But he stands before you saying, I forgive all. I give all life. 
and I make the most comprehensive demands upon you. I say to you, follow me in faith and live. What do you say? Send these words, O Lord, with the wonderful work of the Spirit, hidden and powerful, who is pleased to attend the reading and the preaching of the Word, to bring light, to magnify Christ, to bring forth from the dead, to bring hope, to extend forgiveness. Strengthen us, O Lord, in our faith, that we might abound in hope and love, we ask in Christ's name, amen.